Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament to chapter 8. If you're visiting with us this evening, we go through entire books of the Bible. We go verse by verse. And that's because we believe that God not only ordained the words of the Bible, but also their order. And so we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel in the evening and in the morning, the book of Romans. And we've come to chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. Verses 10 through 22. As we came to chapter 8, we read the account about Samuel and his sons. And it is a difficult account, and one that the people of Israel had a good and a righteous complaint regarding his sons were not good judges. They filled their pockets, they were corrupt. Yet in their complaint, they decided that they would like to be like the world, that they would like a king. Not a king after the heart of God, but rather a king like all the other nations have. And so the Lord warned uh, Samuel that this was a bad thing and also called Samuel to warn the people. And so that's where we are this evening. So let us hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 22. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we study this ancient history of your church, give us understanding. O Lord, we are not people that live in a kingdom. We live in a country. O Lord, we are not a people who have had the pleasure to see the rise or even the fall of an earthly kingdom of which we are under. 
O Lord, help us to perceive in this passage of Scripture the outlines of a greater king, of the man after your own heart. O Lord, help us to perceive in this passage Jesus, the greater king of your people, who is an everlasting Lord and is the king of kings. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want what I want, and what I want, I've decided, will be the best thing for me. I want what I want, and what I want, I've decided, will be the best thing for me. You see, these are the sort of words that startle parents of small children whenever they shout this across the store. These are also the words spoken through the gritted teeth of teenagers who decide that they'll disobey their parents and have the freedom that they want on their own terms. These are the words that are spoken when against all good information and sound advice, adults make fatally flawed decisions that bring themselves into bankruptcy and disaster upon their homes and lives. These are the same words on the lips of adulterers who, after they leave their spouses for an extramarital affair, rip families apart and then destroy their own lives through ungodliness. These are the words of the one-time Christian who denies Christ to live a life of open sin even though it is destroying them and will lead ultimately and eternally to their destruction. And these are the same sort of words uttered by Israel to the ears of their God whenever they wanted to be just like all the other nations and to have a worldly king. You see, when we think we decide for ourselves what is best for us, because we are a sinful people, we inevitably make shipwreck of our lives. But God's word gives us warnings if we have ears to hear them. And he is full of grace for those who would heed his word. And so this evening, as we study the passage of Scripture, we have two simple points. The first are words of warning. Words of warning. And the second is a warning not heeded. Words of warning and then a warning not heeded or not received. So last time we met in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we had the account, as I reminded you a little bit earlier of Samuel's two sons, whom he appointed to be judges over the people of Israel because he was at great age. It seems that Samuel had lost his stamina, his ability to travel and to be like a shepherd of the sheep in the midst of the people of Israel. And his two sons, Joel and Abijah, are corrupt. They're men who basically made decisions and rulings to whomever paid them the most money. And this is an abusive office, and everyone understands this sort of thing. It's offensive. It was offensive then, just as it is offensive now. People want justice. They want impartial judges. They want people with whom they can count on who will not offend justice just for the sake of their own benefit. And so last time we met, we have the account of the elders of Israel assembling themselves into a committee, or may I say a session of elders as is proper and they had a complaint amongst themselves and it was a good complaint and they brought it rightly and in ordered fashion before Samuel the most eldest amongst the judges in the day of their lives 
And their complaint was simply, look at what your sons are doing. But their request, as they want reparation, is actually not at all godly, at least in the way in which they desire it. You see, God's word allows for a king, absolutely allows for a king. However, it would be a king of God's own choosing. But the request that the elders of Israel bring before the ears of Samuel is this. They demanded a king to judge them like all the other nations. To put it into one phrase, they wanted to become worldly. They wanted to be like everybody else. And last week, whenever we studied the passage of Scripture, the thing that I noted is that God requires more of his people. We're not just just simply be like the nations and to be worldly like everybody else, but a specific people. Odd and awkward to the culture of the world because we are a people after the heart of God. However, in any case, whenever the worldly heart chases after worldliness, it doesn't just reject the ministry. You see, whenever Samuel heard this sort of thing, it cut him to the heart like any minister of the gospel, if he's rejected, would feel. But the Lord simply said to him, Samuel, it's not that they've rejected you, but that they've rejected me. And that's the offense of worldliness, that it rejects God and his rule as a king over his people. That's the issue. That's the whole thing. It's saying simply, God, we don't need your direction. We will decide what is best for us. And last time, the Lord encouraged Samuel to warn them. This, after all, is gracious. It's every bit as gracious as traffic signs that warn Danger ahead, road is out. And maybe they even have a picture where the road runs out over a cliff. You know, they're trying to tell you something bad is ahead. You may want to not keep driving. That's gracious. It would be entirely unkind for your leaders to not put that sign there and to let you keep going at a very fast pace directly off the cliff before you could put on brakes. It's a gracious thing to give warnings. It's a kindness. It's a mercy to give warnings. For a parent to warn a child is only kind. Don't do that. It is not in your best interest. And the problem that we have with warnings as people is that simply we don't trust other people to know what's best for us. Children think I know better than mom and dad. We think often I know better than my leaders. I'll decide what's right for me. But nonetheless, the word of God brings warnings throughout the Bible that warn us that we would hear his word and stop and not sin and not bring disaster on ourselves and on our households. And so I want to look together at the warning, uh, verses uh, 10 down through 18, the warning uh, that Samuel is inspired by God to bring to the people of Israel. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pick it in its parts and we're going to examine this uh, together. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow the ground and some to reap the harvest and to make his implements of war and his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. 
He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. That is a heavy warning. And up until this point, verse 10 through 17, the warning regards the abuses of an earthly king, of the heart of a worldly man who would set up a worldly kingdom. But this isn't just a one-sided warning. This is a double-sided warning, not only about the abuses of an earthly king, but about the righteous wrath of a heavenly God. Verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. A twofold warning. And so let's look at the warning in its parts regarding the earthly king, the worldly man who will rule over the people of Israel. And the first thing to say is that in verse 10, the people bring it on themselves. This is regarding the king who they were asking from him. The people designed this sort of king and kingdom for themselves. And isn't that always the case? That inevitably when we decide we'll be the one that rules our own lives, we make a mess of it. We don't have the foresight of God and the wisdom of God, but rather we entice ourselves with the wisdom of the world and everything falls out from there. In verse 11, there's this first aspect that we are warned against regarding the worldly king. And you're going to hear this phrase again and again, and you heard me emphasize it a second ago. He will take your sons. And it makes sense. This is a conscription act, the draft for an army. Uh, It makes perfect sense. After all, the people want to raise up what? Well, they want to be raised up as a kingdom, in an earthly kingdom. They want a standing army for defense, and it makes good sense. They've got really ungodly neighbors that are really angry and really dangerous with really sharp spears and lots of arrows and chariots and horsemen. It's natural to want to have some security, but they want to have that security behind an army led by a worldly king rather than the security of the hand of the God of heaven. You see, this is a shift and it's a change within the life of the people of Israel. Up until this point, if you've read the Bible at all, you understand that the people of Israel have not only fought battles, but many of them. They've won some, they have lost some, but in any case, God has gathered his people together, sent them to war, and led them spiritually into a military battle. They're different, they're unique, they're strange, and they're not like the nations up until this point. But here, instead of the Lord gathering the men of Israel, the king will take them. He's going to take them against their will. They won't have freedom. Moreover, fathers won't have their sons if they need them for harvest. It will be a conscripted military. And then he outlines the different aspects of what the king will do with these conscripted men. He's going to raise some up to be, what? Charioteers. People who drive chariots, who are horsemen in the care of chariots and in cavalry units, and also foot soldiers that just simply run. 
that run in front of the chariots, that run out. They're the first people. They're the ones where the highest casualty rate is noticed. They're the ones that the arrows get to and the spears get to first. This is a hard word. And it's not that the people of Israel are unfamiliar with war, but they're simply here being told, a king will take your sons and force them to it. Whether it's a good war or a wicked war. You go on and you read that he's going to appoint some as commanders over great units of thousands and some over fifties. Establishment of a standing army. He's going to appoint farmers and craftsmen for the kingdom and also to establish his machines of war. There's, there's a diversity and it makes perfect sense if you're building a kingdom and you have a standing army, you've got to feed them, you've got to clothe them, you have to equip them and arm them for war. And so up until this point, it makes perfect sense. They're going to get a modern army. They're going to get exactly what they want. And it's going to be at the expense of their freedom and of their sons. And then you press on and look down at verse 13. And here he is taking again. He's not just going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. Your future is going to get held in his hand. That's what's being said here. The mothers of the nation will be servants Or if you want to translate that same word, that it could be servants to slaves. There's no difference within the passage between servants and slaves. It's all that same Hebrew word, aved. He's going to take your daughters and he's going to make them perfumers, cooks, bakers. Now this sounds fine enough. They're going to have careers. It's going to be a kingdom that's set up. But there's something under this. That the king will take the daughters for his own pleasure and the lavish lifestyle that he intends to live. They will be used for his benefit, for his palace, for his own design. Perfumers, I don't know if you know very much about perfuming, but in the ancient world, perfuming had to do with the pursuit and the picking of flowers and fine spices and minerals, for that matter, and the processing of them over time into aromas and perfumes, just like you would know today. Cooks, uh, this has a larger uh, depiction. Uh, This could mean one of two things, like a palace cook or maybe even a military cook to travel with an army. Uh, But nonetheless, it means uh, the ingathering, the processing, the cooking, and the serving, and the cleaning for all of the food that is needed for the people. And then you go down to the baker, and a baker is not just simply somebody that receives flowers uh, or bags of flour, and uh, bakes them in an oven, but rather, in this time, they harvest, they winnow, they crush, they themselves make the dough, they bake the dough, and they distribute the dough as bread after it's cooked. It's a larger process. In essence, he's saying to these people, your daughters will not be at the disposal of your household or have freedom for the simple work of being mothers in the midst of the people of Israel as they otherwise would have because of what you're requesting. That's pretty serious. It's significant and ought not be overlooked. Then you look down to verse 14, and here again we have the loud phrase, He will take, what now? Your best fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards to pay his servants. There's a number of ways that you can understand this, but it seems to be the case, in in essence, that the government will, I don't don't know the uh, 
the German term, so please forgive me. I'm going to try to explain it. We would call it in English the easement of property, where a government can just take of your property for themselves and in some cultures, and in this culture specifically, not pay you a single thing for it. It is, in essence, communal theft or national theft of lands for the sake of the sustenance of a nation or an army. He's going to take your fields, your best ones. He's going to take your best vineyards and your best olive orchards so that he can pay his servants or so that he can reward his servants. Either one of those. Depends on what king we're talking about. And in the history of the people of Israel, we saw both of these things done. Because it does make sense if you've got all these soldiers, the fields are going to come from somewhere. A king will not already have those things at his disposal. He'll need these things to feed his army. He'll need these things to feed his servants. But later... We know that there are abuses and there are lords raised up amongst the people of Israel, a feudalism where people are made rich at the expense of the poor. You go on and in verse 15, you've got the next phrase, he will take a tenth of your grain and vineyards. Now, this isn't a tithe. No, this is a tax. This is a tax Outside of and irrespective of a tithe. And you're going to lose what? Your grain, the steady, constant uh, thing that you can count on throughout the year to feed your family. Your grain and your vineyards. What's the fruit of the vineyard? But wine, generally, or grapes to be crushed and made into wine or even into vinegar. But why and to what end? It's going to be for the payment of officers and to give to servants. Up until this point, we've not heard about anything like gold exchanging hands. Well, it lets you know about the economy of the people of Israel. They were not yet a kingdom. They didn't have gold. They had real wealth and real economies like fields and people and crops. Verse 16, we read again, he will take, what now? He's been taking a whole lot already. He's going to take your male servants. Hang on a second, he already took our sons. He's going to take your male servants, your female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys. Hang on a second. What are we going to have? We've got to do some things. We actually, you know, got to live lives. What's going to happen now? We've got farms. Well, he's going to take. And we're not simply told what he's going to do with them, but he's going to take them. He's going to amass wealth. He's going to live in lavishness, it seems. Verse 17. He will take, yet again, a tenth of your flocks. Well, we'll still have nine-tenths, but he's going to take a tenth of your flocks. He's going to impact not just the things that you've already given, but just absolutely everything you have. His hand will be in your pocket. He'll follow you around. He'll take what is rightfully his. It will be a tax, and you will have nothing to say because he will have a standing army made up of your sons and will take it from you possibly at the point of a spear even against his own people. This happens to Israel. This is what's coming. And it makes sense. Because every single person in the room understands what it is to be taxed, especially here. Yeah, death and taxes, the two things we can count on. That's what some people say. We know all about it. It doesn't seem strange. It doesn't seem different. But here's the reality. This was foreign to the people of Israel. They had not lived a life with taxes because they had been under judges and God is their king. They were not made for this. They were made for freedom. And God is warning them. If you start this, there's not going back. 
You can try to revolt and have revolutions, but whenever you establish this culture among yourselves, it's what you have and it's what you will have. Because there is another final reality of what it will be to be the subject of a worldly king. And it ends in verse 17 with this. And you shall be his slaves. No politician would like to use the language of slavery in any way other than to absolutely deride it. But the Bible describes the living of worldly citizens under worldly kingdoms in essence to have the same effect as slavery. You work for him. He has a right to your wealth, your family, your life, your livelihood, and your ability to live. You live at his disposal. You become his slave. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been put in a situation where I could be told, do this and pay all the taxes and everything like this is going to happen to you. But you don't have to. This is a warning. You can turn back. You can turn away from this. You can turn back to the Lord, live under him as your king, and have freedom. I've never had that opportunity. I've always lived in a worldly kingdom. I've always understood these things. It's just a simple fact of life, isn't it? It's not how we were intended to be. It's not. It's a godly thing to give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar because when you go down this road, you submit to them under the Lord, yes. But nonetheless, it's not the design that God has for his people. It's not going to be the design of the new kingdom when his king reigns. Instead of him exacting from us taxes in great excessive tithe, Instead of him enslaving our sons and daughters and us, he'll be setting us free and blessing us and pouring out wonderful feasts before us that we might eat without working. There's an entirely different kingdom for which we are intended. But then that last warning, verse 18, and it's heavy, and it's this. In that day you will cry out because of your king. The Bible says people won't like taxation. It won't be pleasant. And I don't know, any of you, maybe you write your taxes or you think, yes, my taxes go to a really good end. There's good use and so on and so forth. But in the reality of it, do you debate with this? Is it enjoyable? Is it fine? Is it wonderful? If you could not pay them, which you must pay them, but if you could not pay them, would it not be pleasant? Would it not be a freedom that would be worth enjoying? Verse 18, in that day you will cry out because of your king. It's going to be because of his rule and his harshness and his weight upon you. And it will be your fault because he's the one whom you have chosen for yourselves. Verse 18, this is your doing. And the Lord's saying, I'm warning you here. Because in that day when you cry out, the Lord will not answer you in that day. I'm warning you. And on that day... Your cries will fall on silent ears. There won't be a change. And ultimately we know that this is the case. The people take the kingdom. They take the kingship. Everything goes the way of the world. And the people begin to live under that. And the Lord does not relieve them of that. He has even yet not relieved us of worldly kingdoms. And he will not do so until a heavenly kingdom descends. And so we wait on it. And you can cry out, Lord, I don't want to pay my tax bill. Lord, I don't want to pay this or that. I don't want to do this or that. I don't want to go... And serve in military conscription or so on and so forth. 
But nonetheless, it's where we find ourselves, and it is the weight of worldliness. Specifically, this is the consequence of not heeding the warnings of God. Multi-layered bureaucracy, slavery, conscription of our sons and daughters, the lavish lifestyle of the wealthy, the taking of our property, and loads and loads and loads of taxes. But isn't this the case? Any time we decide what we want for ourselves, when we ignore the Lord saying to us, don't do this, it won't bless you, that we end up becoming slaves of the things that we think will please us, our designs, our desires, whether it's addiction, whether it's a career, whether it's a relationship with someone that's not our spouse, whether it's any number of things, we find ourselves literally trapped by them. And so what's the word here? Is it don't pay taxes? Absolutely not. Pay your taxes. What's the word? Heed the warnings of the word of God. When the Lord's word warns you of things, have ears that hear, act accordingly. Don't ignore good, solemn warnings. They are gracious. The Lord knows what is best for us. And in verses 19 and 22, we see the warnings not heeded. So look at it with me. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. I think there's some weight to that phrase. Because I think it shows us the way they regard what they've heard. Because this could read in a different manner, couldn't it? But the people refused to obey the voice of whom? Samuel's what they heard. But who should they have heard? The reality of it is the people refused to obey the warnings of God. Samuel's nothing but a mouthpiece. And it's inconceivable to think that the people don't know and understand that Samuel's warnings are from the Lord. But nonetheless, they reject him and they reject the Lord. And there's the insistence from the people as you continue in verse 19. Sharply, no, but there shall be a king over us. We'll have it our way. I want what I want. I'll decide what's good for me. We will have a king over us. And here's the goal, verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be worldly. That's what they're saying. We heard the warnings and we don't care about what you've said. No, we reject it. We will be just like the Philistines. We will be just like the people to the north and to the south. We'll be like every other kingdom on the face of the earth. We want people to look at us and simply see just an average person, a citizen according to the world economy, to be indistinguishable. It's a rejection of the call of God's people to be salt and to be light, to be in every way a living testimony to his character. Last week I mentioned that this is something we often hear. 
um, from children. I don't think I've heard it from my boys yet. I'm sure it's coming. And it would be something like this. Dad, Mom, I want this thing, this toy, this shirt, this brand of clothing. I want to do this game, this thing. Because I want to be just like all the other kids, Dad. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I don't want them to pick on me. I don't want them to notice me. I just want to blend into the crowd. I tell you, one of the places where this comes into clear distinction, and it has to do with sporting functions. This has been my experience in the church. Kids say, Dad, I I, I just want to play football. I want to play baseball, soccer, whatever it is. And, Dad, I know that I can't play because if we're going to go to church morning and evening, it means that I'm going to not be able to play that game on Sunday. And my teammates are going to think I'm weird or they're not going to put me in this position or that position and I'm not going to be able to flourish like all of them. I just want to be like them. I want that kind of success and that kind of enjoyment and just be part of the group. I experienced this as a kid. What's the call of the people of God but to live peculiarly, to be different, to be holy, to be sanctified, to be people that do stand out, that are different, People that actually do have a testimony of why they don't do certain things, when they don't do it, why they don't say certain things, why they don't listen to certain things, all of it, why they don't drink certain things, smoke certain things, and every other thing that can be done. Because God calls us to more than that. He calls us to be a people that reflect who he is. And the frank fact of the matter is our God is holy. He's not like his creation. Even the creatures made in his image and after his likeness are fallen and marred in their image of him. And even who they are falls so far short of who he is. But God's people are called to be like him. To shine forth who he is. To be able in their lifestyle and with their words to live in a testimony so that the world would simply say, what is going on here? What is different about them? I want to tell you a testimony from this church. Uh, Two years ago, um, I had for a time committed to a workout regiment. I've since given it up, as you can tell. And I would go to the gym on Kelly Barracks with two of our members. Some of you, I'll just tell you who it is too. D. Lita, who was a member here. And... uh, we would go and we would work out and everything. And Antonio and I would be talking. As Antonio and I were together and Dee was over doing something else. And uh, we would notice that Dee would sort of make the rounds in the gym, talking to random people. It could be a special forces soldier. It could be the desk clerk, whoever. And one day, we heard a lady come up to Dee and simply say loud enough for us to hear it that we both sort of, you know, got a little bit quieter in the extreme workout that we were doing. And she said, there's just something different about you. There's just something different about you. And Dee's just pouring sweat. And she's like, yeah, I don't come very often, you know. And she said, no, you smile. No, you don't curse. No, you don't carry yourself. Just like everybody else. You're you're different, Dee. And Dee looked at her, and praise God, I would embarrass her if I told her this in front of her. But she simply said to her, it's because I love Jesus. He changed my life. My whole life's different because of him. Everything I think, everything I do, I'm not a perfect person, but everything I think, everything I do is in light of what he's done for me. If I'm different, it's not because of me, it's because of him. 
And the lady seemed as if she'd never heard a single thing like that in her life. And Dee shared the gospel with her. And I don't know if this woman's ever come to faith. But I can simply tell you this. On that day she heard about the God of heaven. Who gave his only begotten son for sinners. She heard and saw at least in some measure, some fashion. A little bit of the glimpse of the glory of Jesus that is poured onto believers in baptism. In the life and the testimony of a Christian woman minding her own business, working out in a gym. We are called to be a people different, and the people of Israel refused this warning. And it's terrible. And really, it's wildly reckless. And really, at the very heart of it, it's a worldly heart. They are saying in the face of God and in the face of his word, I don't care what you say, I am my own master. I will make something happen. I will do what I want. We know better than God. We will care for ourselves. And the way we will do it will not be with the ways of the heart of God. Isn't this the same thing that the sons of Samuel decided to do for themselves? Yeah, we'll do what you want. Tell us what sort of decision you want. Just give us money. We'll take it. In the full knowledge that that would be sin. What's the big mistake of it? Not heeding the warnings of God. That inevitably, whenever we refuse him as our master and say that we are ourselves a master of who we are, we quickly give ourselves over in slavery to something else. Whether it's a worldly king whether it's a culture, whether it's an addiction, whether it's something that grips our heart, inevitably we find ourselves saying, I simply don't know how I got here and I don't know how to get out of here. And I want to tell you that there's freedom in Jesus Christ. That Yes, these are people who submitted to a worldly kingdom and we are a people that live in a worldly kingdom, but there's a heavenly kingdom coming. And if we're mastered by the things of this world, there is a king who is coming who will wage war against the things that enslave us, against the prince of the power of the world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, following the passions of the heart, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's one that's coming who's going to conquer him and set us free. Make us citizens in his kingdom, call us his sons and his daughters, put us at his table and bless us and give to us richly out of his own abundance. Instead of taking from us the little bit of nothing that we don't have. And I invite you Christians to turn to Christ and cling to him. And I freely offer him to anybody who would receive him. This is the hope of the Christian life, freedom and a life lived with him in blessedness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we thank you for ancient history that has real present meaning for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as your people. Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Lord, help us to turn from unrighteousness. Help us to have faith that you are good and that you are wise. 
Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.